0: This is Jonathan Van Horn from Start Your Dental Practice Podcast and at Dennismetrics.com, You're a dental CPA and you are listening to hashtag POD Podcast of Dentistry. This podcast is sponsored by Rocketbook. I hate wasting paper. If I could, I would not use pen and paper at all. But... I love the feeling of writing and drawing with pen on a nice paper. Somehow I feel I'm connected to it, but always hated the fact that I cannot bring my drawings or ideas to the digital world. Now Rocketbook is the exact amalgamation of both the physical and the virtual world. Hear this. You can draw or write on the Rocketbook, take a picture with the Rocketbook app and magically it cleans the picture and sends it to Google Drive, Evernote, Dropbox, OneDrive, OneNote, Slack, Box, iCloud, iMessage or even classic email. Just configure the symbols once and that's it. You snap a picture and your drawings or plans or notes are right in the Drive or Dropbox or anything that you choose to send it to. Once you're done, simply use a moist towel. Yes, a moist paper towel. And you can erase it only to be used again. Simply saving paper. Simply head over to podcastsofdentistry.com slash rocketbook. Hi, my name is Dr. Pang Stingra and welcome to hashtag POD, Podcasts of Dentistry. Today's guest is Dr. Bill Williams. For those who don't know Dr. Bill Williams, here is Dr. Williams' bio. Dr. Williams is a noted author including two number one bestsellers, Marketing the Million Dollar Practice and the $10,000 a Day Dentist. Dr. Bill Williams is a Master of the Academy of General Dentistry and International College of Craniomandibular Orthopedics and is involved in the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry, the American Academy of Implant Dentistry, the American Academy of Craniofacial Pain and many more such associations. Over his 43 years career as a dentist, he has been a founder of the Stone Mountain Dental Group, the Atlanta Cranium Mandibular Society, TMJ Framework, the Solicitis Research Group, Suvani Dental Care, and many more such associations. Dr. Phillips is also a past president of the Georgia Academy of General Dentistry. He is a graduate of the Medical College of Georgia School of Dentistry, The AAID Maxi Course in Implant Dentistry. Today, he shares a lot of information that that can help new associates or owners or seasoned dentists, managers, and everyone in between. He talks about his traits, training, mentors, mentor of mentors, his new patient experience that made him millions in a lifetime, his take on marketing, and how he is able to attract patients who can buy great dentistry that he sells. He also shares what he wants to do next, what he is excited about, and my very favorite Tim Ferriss-inspired questions. I hope you like this podcast as much as I do. So, without further ado, Dr. Bill Williams. Um, and uh, I had so much, so much to ask you. You know, I'm sure, you know, one, uh, you know, one episode wouldn't be enough, but I'm going to try to squeeze in. Uh, some components of everything. And I realized uh, while while researching that I can ask you questions based on clinical, uh, philosophical, spiritual questions, obviously, not to mention non-clinical management, you know, and things, all that. There's so much to talk about. What would you say is Bill's story, you know, starting from dental school, uh, parenting, you know, the path that got you, where you are right now, you know, some basic milestones, obviously. You know, how would you say, what's your story?
1: As a tale of two cities, you know, it's uh, first half, second half. I, I tell that story kind of in my book, Marketing, the Million Dollar Practice, where I, I did 23 years in Stone Mountain, and then I've done 22 years in Swanee, and they're they're really different sides of the coin. Right. And uh, I've also got a 10-year time span, uh, attention span. So I I tend to focus on something for about 10 years, and then I jump to something else. And um, those are interesting topics to cover because if you're looking to span the gap of a career of 45 years in dentistry, a lot of the younger guys think they are going to lock themselves into one thing, and they don't. Yeah. really it'll happen they'll change and they'll move and they'll grow right. so that's the topic that will be very interesting to the majority of people
0: so um who pushed you uh to get into a dental school or you were motivated enough by yourself to get into a dental school to begin with yeah my dad your dad yeah i think it's always that my dad too
1: <laughs> there, there, there's an origin story always that I tell. Yep, it's pretty quick and easy. I'll do that. Sure,
0: sure, sure. Um, so, um, so you got into the dental school and you graduated. When did you graduate again? 1975.
1: 1975.
0: That's like I wasn't even born then. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: I did my first filling in 1972. Our oh, first quarter. Our first quarter in dental school, we were actually trained to do a uh, class one amalgam.
0: Cool. Nice. So uh, so tell me, uh, what are the basic, the big milestones that you think um, over the p- past 40 years you would want to at least just throw it to the audience? This is what I did. This was my first milestone and so on. So that people have a, a generic idea about who Bill is. I mean, I know, but not everybody.
1: Well, I got interested in uh, neuromuscular dentistry and TMJ, and I went that track for 10 years. And I I got to be an international lecturer in that in the first 10 years of my career, set up an institute, had a mini residency in my office. And then I went to international business for, for about 10 years, and I traveled all over the world while I was in practice, didn't ever leave practice. And I, and I had businesses in Russia, Indonesia, Colombia, uh, Greece, Costa Rica, you know, things like that. And then I pulled back and started over, sold my practice and um, started over in Suwannee and built that practice and it b- became success beyond anything else that I'd done. So uh, still working in that same practice, I, I've, I've transitioned out of it already, I've Formed a consulting company 10 years ago and I um, looked, looked to retire in about five months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I say retire, though, it's got uh, quotation marks around re- the word retire. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to rewire. Okay. And I'm going to stop having uh, scheduled appointments, but I'm going to come in and work whenever I feel like it from now on. And I probably never stop practicing, but. I'm going to move into the phase where I'm focused more on teaching, educating dentists, and I don't have to go to practice every week. That means I'll have a a lot more free time to travel and be with my kids. My my grandchildren are moving from London, England, to to Doha, Qatar, and I've done missions all over the world, and so I've got uh, future missions in the future, I think, but I I did Vietnam this December. Yeah. I did Kenya 10 times. I did Tanzania, Honduras, and Haiti. And so there's a lot of things that are still left to do. Wow. But I'm rewiring how I'm going to do it as I turn 70, which will be in April.
0: Wow. I was uh, reading about your books and reading your books and I realized uh, the foreword, which was written in your book uh, by Joe M. Ellis. Um, yeah. And that really grabbed my attention. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Joe and, is my buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe you. And uh seems like if somebody is writing a foreword for uh, Dr. Bill, it's a big deal. You know, he must be a buddy slash, you know,
1: colleague slash mentor slash friend, everything, right? Uh, yeah, we were we were uh, in the uh, Solstice Study Club for 10 years and we met every 6 months on the sol summer and the winter solstice. So well, that's kind of how Joe and I got together. And that's why you're called
0: as Solstice Dental Advisors. I read that. Well, uh,
1: called, now, we we named Solstice Dental Advisors after my study club that I had 20 years ago. Yeah. So
0: okay. it was a,
1: it, it was a separate group but still a very important group. Sure.
0: Sure. Uh so uh, the thing that grabbed my attention, and what Joe said, uh, Doctor Joe Ellis said, was uh, about you. He's always set and raised a high bar of excellence, not only in work but also in life balance. You know, um, it, it's it's a hard equation to crack. Uh, for I'm sure hundreds and thousands of dentists, not only in the US but around the world. What did you say? How did you? think that you have a life balance at all. Um, Even in your early years, okay, now I understand you're all, you know, popular, you know, you're doing things, everybody knows Dr. Bill. But, you know, in the initial stages, how were you able to
2: manage or get a life balance Yeah,
1: I wasn't as balanced back then, by the way, early on. I was a gunner for education. I was in class every other weekend. And, you know, I, as soon as I started being an expert enough to where I felt like I knew everything in the particular subject, then I started teaching it. So uh, there was a, a group of us that ran around together in the TMJ circles that formed a study club called the Atlanta Cranium Mandebular Society. Uh and once we learned everything we started teaching everything to other people and and out of that one little group you know like seven international lecturers came out of that one group that you know became major people and um and then years later the solstice group became the same thing not in tmj but in practice management and uh, other areas of dentistry um it was interesting that a lot of the people that I've associated with have ended up being very uh, famous world leaders. Wow! And it's, it's all because we sought out like-minded people, and you become who you hang around. And so we inspired each other to go forward. And uh, Dr. Joe Ellis was the kind of the grand papa of the group, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a kind of hierarchy of people in the in the study club, the Solstice one, that. Some older ones, some middle ones, and some young ones. Sure. And so, go ahead.
0: Yeah. So, uh, again, uh, so initially, if I understand correctly, uh, not everybody has a life balance, which we all talk about. Uh, but essentially, in the long run, uh, that's what you develop. Is that the right way of putting it?
1: I think the lifestyle came from being very successful compared to my peers. I was able to produce more, do more dentistry, have extra money left over. I combined travel with education. I took my family on vacations when I was on educational trips. And, and so uh, a, a lot of what I did was I was able to amass more savings, more money than my average dental friends. And I, uh, I think I lived lesser of a lifestyle. I think I was able to pr- produce more, to spend more. And the balance, it allowed me to have more fun, more travel, more education, more toys at the dental office. As somebody said once, a, a, a big gross covers a lot of sins. Yeah, okay. So, and
0: wh- what do you think was you were able to do more than your peers at that stage? You know, you were young in uh, 1975. Um, And, uh, you know, what do you think you were, why did you think you were able to do more?
1: I was optimistic. You know, I was in a study club of regular dentists in our local area and I was optimistic and they were pessimistic and they were afraid. And I was unafraid. I I don't have fear. And, And a lot of dentists are limited by their fear. They won't stretch themselves educationally or therapeutically to they want to do what they were trained to do in dental school and not step outside the bounds. And I'm not afraid to go outside the box. Um, I, got, I got an outside the box story that I can tell that one if that's interesting to sure, you. Sure, sure. So those are the things that always set me apart is being fearless and being able to withstand the stress and pressure of people um, looking at me, thinking that I was a little bit weird or a little bit off center. I don't care what people think so much that i won't I won't stop because they think that's silly, yeah, yeah
0: uh, were you fearless uh because of your personality or the way your parenting was when you were growing up, uh, like your parents encouraged you to be fearless or, or what I'm trying to say is uh what instilled that confidence in you to think out of the bounds? Uh, at those or at that early stage,
1: yeah, my dad was a veterinarian, okay, and um uh, see so he was pretty much uh, an outside the box kind of guy in his profession. He was uh, one of eight children, and most of his siblings were builders, yeah, and started working in the industry. The banking industry, the building, the uh, concrete lumber business, and he was—he was the only doctor in the family. So, okay, he, he kind of inspired me to go outside and be my own boss instead of working for the family company. And I was always independent. You know, I never did want to work for somebody else. So I was a bad employee. <laughs> I'm still a bad employee. I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm a very productive bad employee. Uh, I think uh, I wanna, pe- people will I take wanna, that. I want to do my own thing. You know, I don't want to do what other people want me to do. So I work two days a week even now, and I'm working for the people I sold my practice to seven years ago. Wow!
0: Oh, so you've already sold the practice, but you're working as an associate right now?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, like, but I've, you know, I, I produce in two days what they produce in five days. So I believe you. I, I believe am not. You. I'm not calling myself a part timer. I'm just saying I'm working a little smarter than the <laughs> average bear. Right. So so you that taught you to be fearless and probably that's
0: the reason you were more uh thinking out of the box at those early stages trying to do uh more things than your peers and probably that paved way of success for you, you know, initially at least. Uh and then that continued that that process actually made you bolder, if I would say. Uh, to try more and more bigger things. Am I right?
1: Yeah, you know, I went through scouting. I was a Cub Scout, Boy okay. Scout, an Explorer yeah. Scout, Order of the Era, Eagle Scout. So I rose through from the bottom to the very top of the Boy Scout um, system, learning how to gain access and grow through the ranks and become successful. So I had very good training, and I, and I would say to anybody who – never went through scouting and they don't know what they missed because it, it is the best training there is for mm. developing a young person
2: into somebody
1: who's, um, who's got a, a mindset to succeed. What did you think, um, was the best, um,
0: experience, uh, in your scouting that you, that you actually implemented apart from being fearless, that you implemented learning from scouting to your, uh, daily life, dentistry, mm if you would say something.
1: I think discipline was it. You know, uh, my biggest issue with scouting was that we moved every two years, my entire life. I had to go to a new town.
2: Oh, my dad okay. was,
1: my dad was in the poultry industry as a veterinarian. And he was going from town to town to town, moving up the ladder of corporate America, with work with Cargill. And he was production, national production manager, for chickens, turkeys, and eggs. Yeah. And uh, they had farms all over the place, and they had different corporate things. That he, So we lived in many towns in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Maryland, Minnesota, Florida. And so I was never in the same place. You know, we had 30 houses before I was 18. <laughs> and in scouting, you know, you, you, you put roots down, and you, you learn how to go through and become a leader In a group. Well, I was yanked out of my leadership development every two years. Wow. And so I learned how to meet people. I learned how to fit in quickly. I learned how to get inside the system right off the bat when I moved. And so from the time I was six to seven years old, whenever you start scouting, I think it's eight. Eight is when you do Cub Scouts. And I went all the way into college. Yeah. See, when I went to college, I joined Alpha Phi Omega, the service fraternity, and lo and behold, it was started by Baden Powell, the same guy who started scouting. Wow. And it was the college fraternity based on scouting principles. And oh. so I never did leave the scouting uh, mindset. And I, as I went into dentistry, I even became a, a district director in our local area for a while, supporting scouting. but. Uh, but the main thing about scouting was it just it learned you learned how to set goals achieve goals on a on a specific timeline
0: interesting so uh fearless that was one uh discipline uh, that you learned from scouting um, and probably that's and you know kind of uh, uh, you moving around every two years and you're still taking it because you were fearless because you were disciplined, you were able to still gel into. Uh, a new scouting group, meeting new people. And I think meeting new people and still able to make them like you um, is, is 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 a big deal, you know, I believe. Uh, because not everybody would welcome a stranger, you know, uh, in their scout. New, yeah,
1: yeah a ahead. new kid on their block thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember the Eagles sound, sound, song? Uh, There's a new kid in town. Everybody <laughs> knows him. But when I... When I moved from the 10th grade to the 11th grade, you know, I just got into the place where I was starting to be a known person, a leader in that high school, and I moved and I started over again. And hmm. so it was like a rest of development. Got it. <laughs> but it turned out pretty well because I had a really good first year in that ne- next high school, 11th grade, and I got to be the president of the beta club. Cool. And um uh, And it it was a big deal for me to be given leadership position at that time when I was pretty new uh, after one year in one place. And so I think I learned to aspire to be a leader somewhere in that time period between when I got my Eagle Scout Award, when I got to be the president of the Beta Club, and then I went on to college. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, college was a great awakening, I was an ace in high school. I was average in college compared to whoever else was in college. Really, you know how that is. <laughs> high school, anybody can be the top guy in high school. Not so in college. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different. Um, uh,
0: different time altogether. You know, you meet new people from all over the place, and you know, uh, you have more competition um, in every possible way.
1: You know, in a in a college. I, I'm glad I I went to college back when I did, but. You know, these days here in Georgia with the Hope Scholarship, the average class admission standard is like a 4.0. It's crazy out there. Of course, they have grade shopping and grade creation techniques now that we didn't used to have. (laughs) (laughs) So uh,
0: you got into college and then you got into dental school. Um,
1: And what happened then? well, I applied to three schools, got in three schools, picked Georgia because I thought, well, this is a three-year school. I can go year-round and don't have to take off summers, and I'll get done quicker. And so that was a great choice. Uh, it was the best school by far that I could have been because it was a brand-new school. Okay. All the all the uh, instructors had just been chosen from across the country, like hand-picked, the best of the best that uh, Dr. Judd Hickey could put together and uh, – Besides a brand-new building, the new faculty had not been entrenched long enough to form cliques, and they hadn't been entrenched long enough to hate students. Got they all it. came because they liked their their new uh, digs. They liked their new student body. And uh, nothing better than to be in a new school for freedom. They treated us fair. They didn't treat us like most dental schools you hear getting treated very unfairly. Yeah. So it's like a startup school. (laughs) A startup school. Yeah, (laughs) Because, you know, uh, because they were experimenting with a lot of new things, you know, dental auxiliary utilization. Yeah. It was brand new back then. And so I learned 400 dentistry, 600 dentistry, um, things that most schools never even got into.
0: Got it. Got it. Now I'm switching gear back to your book here. Um, $10,000 day dentist. Yes. That's, that's the book we're talking about. Uh, You've been talking about Alex. Now, is, uh, <laughs> who is Alex Middleton, I should Alex say?
1: Alex the guru. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, yeah the, guide.
0: the guide. The guide. But is the guide for real or that Alex is actually you talking about?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I admit it in the book. Yeah. Way back in the, about this far from the end. Yeah. I say, you know, really, Alex is me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I figured. I figured, but. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I'll tell you a secret nobody's ever heard. Sure. All five of those other dentists are also me to some degree. Oh, wow. Some That's- of those, some of those, uh, you know, this is, these uh, five dentists that I talk about in the book are composites of a few people I know. And they're also some of the things I think and I feel about how I went through my phases, you know, my early phase, my gunner's phase, my spiritual service phase. Uh, I don't know that I was ever the stick-in-the-mud guy. You know, that that guy that I talk about is uniquely average, and mm. I w- never have been uniquely average. So I had to kind of pull him out of the real world, not out of, you know, other friends of mine, but <laughs> – it's an interesting book because I pull from a lot of places to create each character.
0: Yeah, so uh, for the audience who doesn't know about the book, who hasn't read the book, um, uh, basically, uh, uh, Dr. Bill talks about five different scenarios uh, where five different dentists, uh who is being guided by uh, Alex Middleton, a character um, who is helping him acting as a guide to all the all the five scenarios and who all of them were successful in their own ways uh, at the end, uh, just by following what Dr. Bill says. And essentially <laughs> Alex Middleton is Dr. Bill himself. So
1: I was trained and, and had a mentor named uh, Dr. Omar Reed, and he was my main mentor throughout a lot of my career. And, and I, and I kind of aspired to be the next Omar Reed For many years, I wanted to do what he did because I loved being at his house. So that's one reason I have uh, masterminds at my house. And, uh, you know, he put people up in his house when they came to stay and teach with him. So I do the same thing. When people come and teach with me, I put them up at my house. And uh, we sit around on the back porch after the sessions and just chat. So a lot of the formative years in dentistry back in the 70s and 80s, early 90s with Omar, or what I'm doing right now in the 2000s, 2020. Yep. Um, So uh,
0: let's go back to uh, your mentor, uh, Dr. Omar Reid. How did you end up meeting uh, your
1: mentor? I read his books. I read his newsletters for years. Okay. And I always wanted to take his classes, but they look so expensive. I go, not yet, not yet. I really can't do that yet. Okay. And um, but then I found a, an, another course, and it was um, some of his guys that had been tutelage under him. And so I went to those classes, and they were very formative for me. They were called Quest, Quest Management System, okay. and Ron, Ron McConnell, Gary McLeod, and some other guys put together a massive program that was twelve days long, four days or three days a quarter throughout a whole year. And so I took my whole team to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, Reno, Nevada, Dallas, Texas, Hawaii, different places. Okay. And we did that for for two years. Okay. Two different Quest programs. And uh, they had been trained by Omer. And when I got through a Quest, I had gotten so much growth, so much uh, understanding of, of systems management, marketing, team development, because I'd never studied any of that before, and because I learned so much, I was so much more profitable than I could afford what I thought I could afford, which Hmm. was going down to Napili with Omer. So I started going to Omer's in the uh, middle 80s, Okay. and I spent, you know, like, one time I went to Phoenix five times in one year to sit at his feet and listen. And it was a matter of uh, major significance from my practice to go through that metamorphosis, starting with Quest, ending up with Omer. And, you know, one of the pinnacle things about my career is Omer had a thing called the Million Dollar Roundtable, the anatomy of the accelerated practice, and I aspired to be like those guys. And I, I didn't have a million dollar practice when I started looking at that, but then by setting my goal that I wanted to be a speaker at that million-dollar roundtable, I, within a year, moved my practice up to a million dollars. This is 1985 or 6, hmm. and I was able to be invited by Omer to come in and speak and give a talk about how we did it. Cool. So it that was a is... pinnacle. I really enjoyed that. That was like a wow experience for me. So, uh,
0: you were you were looking to meet Dr. Omar, learn from him, and be a speaker like him. Isn't that amazing that you are being invited by Dr. Omar to be a speaker at one of his uh, uh, one of his uh, uh, facilities? I mean, that's I think that's a big deal. Um, it's a it's a dream come true for me, at least.
1: Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly what I intended back in the. 80s to happen, and I'm living the dream right now. I'm doing exactly what Omer was doing back in the 70s. You know, he, he would take a group of guys, a small group, and they'd spend some time on Napili Beach. Yeah. In, a, in a Maui. K- K- Napili Beach is right next to Kanapali Beach. Okay. And uh, Kapalua, where they play the um, Mercedes Golf Championship. Okay, okay. So it's known. It's called Napili, mm-hmm. and uh, Omer taught thousands of dentists over twenty, thirty years in his Napili series. And so I went to a lot of those. And there's a whole group of older dentists who have experienced the Napili courses.
0: Uh, who and, else was your uh, colleague? Um, you know, who's doing? Who was at Napili with you? you one of your.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, the Solstice Research Group, our study club, yeah. back in the 90s, came together because we had been part of Napili groups. And Omer suggested to us, he said, you guys are the, the vanguard. You guys are future leaders of dentistry. I want you guys to form a study club. So it was Omer's suggestion that we formed a national study club of uh About eight to 10 dentists. Okay. And we came together, Joe Ellis and um, Nick Myers and um, Steve Cobble, Lee Osler, uh, Tommy Oppenheim. You know, Tommy's got the world's record for the most covers of the AACD magazine. (laughs) Okay, interesting. 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 Uh, yeah. Nick, Nick is the president of uh, several holistic dental societies. Uh, Lee was the founder, one of the presidents of AASH, uh, American Academy of Rural Systemic Health. So there's a lot of leaders that came out of that group. Yeah. Great. And uh, that, that, that was all from the Pili connection. Uh, what was one uh,
0: mindset uh, that you learned at o- uh, dr omar's uh, napili series what did you learn like I- i'm sure you learned so many so many things hundreds and hundreds of things but one umbrella thing that
1: you actually learned being close to him yeah his famous quote i've carried through and made it famous beyond yeah if it's been done, it's probably possible. Uh-huh. He always said that. We always remembered it. And it was like the quote from Omer. And because i carried it with me for the last 25 years, 30 years now from Omer, it's become what I'm known as, uh, you know, people that never knew Omer don't know he said it, but I don't claim it to be mine. I just repeat it. And it's so true. If I see somebody doing something, I can do it. Hmm. And, um, because I believe that I'm a decathlon dentist, I, I don't limit myself to any particular specialty. I don't limit myself to any difficult procedure. I can do any procedure if I see it done. You just have to get trained, you know. You have to understand the biological systems and apply your knowledge. And and so there's nothing in dentistry that I haven't learned that I wanted to learn. You know, I, I will tell you, I saw zygomatic implants. Yeah. Long, long ago, and I said I'll never do that. <laughs> and and I actually found myself thinking yesterday, the day before, I might learn that. I wow. mean, I actually I actually thought about it, but I, I probably won't because of my impending retirement into rewirement. Yeah. If if I rewire myself to do what I'm going to do in the future, it really doesn't include expanding my scope of practice to to do in zygomas. But I sure wish I could because I'm doing a lot of all-on-fours, all-on-sixes, and uh, you, you don't have posterior support in so many of those cases. It would be great to just put a little zygoma implant in there and go, go to town. So I don't know. Yeah. You know how it is. If you want to do it, you can. You just have to get trained. So um,
0: coming back to the training, uh, I think um, I can switch gear here. Um Somebody who's graduating, um, who's just graduated a year ago, two years ago, um, and somebody who who has graduated like five to seven years, what would be the CE courses or the training modules that you would recommend for somebody as a young dentist? You would recommend it to them to, to be successful. You know, what are the, what is the sequence, if I may? You know,
1: there's so much to learn. Um, yeah. yeah, I get that question all the time. Sure. And, uh, the, the thing about it is you've got to get clinical competency for diagnosis and delivery of what you can do. And um, I, I kind of started in the uh, occlusion TMJ area and became very versed in that pain control. And um, that's the one that scares the most dentists, I think, is to d- learn how to do a full mouth reconstruction take a pain patient and get them comfortable and then reconstruct them. Yeah. A lot of people are shy away from that. So I started with the most difficult thing. Maybe these days uh, I would get into the um, implants also because it's such a needed, lucrative, and common situation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there's not a day goes by that I don't do an implant procedure. Sure. And that's just... I don't know how dentist functions these days without that capability. No, I don't know why, but it seems like every other patient needs implants. Right. And um, maybe I'm just looking past the people that don't need implants thinking they don't exist. I don't know what it is, but there's so many tough cases out there that nobody can do unless Mm -hmm. they have the capability of doing implants, sinus lifts, bone grafts it's It's just a marvelous time to be in dentistry if you want to be doing the big cases okay baby boomers are losing teeth, and you know everything that we did in nineteen seventy is breaking down right right so um so basically occlusion
0: tmj with the diagnosis just to plan things properly you know uh, is the first thing absolutely that we should, that we should learn. Uh, Because that would be our foundation and stepping stone to do the implants and restoring at the right place, at the right right location, uh, within the bone, and, you know, uh, get more implants in the game. Uh, Anything else that, you know, young dentists can be, you know, they can learn a lot, but which can be more fruitful for them because of these huge loans. People don't want to do so much work, you know, because they have so much loans and all.
1: What, yeah the loans are the, the loans are an albatross I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know they've got online videos and online training to make up for that where we didn't have anything like that. We had only courses we could go to that would take us away from practice and large tuitions, you know. We had to pay $20,000 to take some of the classes we took to learn implants. There's a lot available now for a lot less money, so it's a trade-off between what we had then and what they have now. Yeah, I I can do ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars in a day now. I could never do that back in my early days. You know, I had two and three thousand dollar days; that was a good day. So you can make a lot more money now than you could back then. So I don't I don't think that school debt is near as a uh, bigger difference as people make it out to be. So you know, you're
0: saying, you're saying the huge amount of student loans is not a problem, but it's, it's more about producing more. Uh, that's a problem.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, y- you, you can produce today so much more than you could back then if you get your training. And so it really behooves a dentist to get trained well, quickly, not put off until they are out of debt you know they just need to dig in read books look at videos go to a few hands-on courses Uh, there's a lot you can do for not that much money in the area of technical dentistry but here's the next step you won't grow until you get into the study of the business of dentistry until you learn how to manage people staff lead become a good leader, you really won't have as much profits. Technical dentistry won't lead you to, to be very profitable. It'll lead you to be a good dentist. But you have to understand business to to take the profit home.
0: Okay, so elaborate this, take the profit home kind of uh, thing, because I can learn good implants. I can go to Dr. Justin Moody's Implant Pathways or Dr. Gerg's, whoever, uh, and then I come back, I start putting implants in i 'm making more money, and then you're saying I should be a leader at the same time to and to understand how I should manage my staff and everything how What has that got to do with you know trying to get more money home?
1: Well, your staff is going to only rise to the level of your expectations, and if you don't provide them a high level of expectation to what they can be, they'll never rise up to make you very productive. You know, you'll be working hard as you can to be productive, but they won't. Okay. And so if you set some goals and include them in the mechanism of how those goals get reached, and you you do that with the KPIs, and you do it with uh, staff bonuses and staff rewards that reward good behavior, and you actually have punishment for those Behaviors that are not productive. You know, I I used to um, have a system where if they failed to produce results, their bonuses went down, Hmm. not just that they got a bonus if they did good. So I I had a plus and a minus system, Okay, and and it helped us become more profitable, and that was kind of how I developed the $10,000 a day system is... Sometime around 2005, five six, we hit the point where I was doing $10,000 every day. Okay. Averaging. And so from that point on, we kept growing more and more. And, you know, I've had as much as $16,000 a day average for a month. But the point is, you have to have the systems put in place for the team to operate like a real team. And so if you read a lot of management books, if you study business principles outside of dentistry, I've always uh, felt like I couldn't learn as much from dentists as I could from business people I agree. About, about management. Mm-hmm. And so I studied under uh, Brad Sugars, uh, Australian business guy who had a thing called Action International Action Coaching. So I had him as a personal coach, one of his coaches for four years. Met with him Friday, every Friday for four years. It took me from about $2 million to $4 million in my practice production, just being in that coaching situation. Hmm. And uh, then I went with um, Armand Morin, learned internet marketing. And then I went with GKIC, Bill Glazer, and, and uh, Dan Kennedy, learned more about marketing. Then I took Coach Blueprint from Mike Crow, who was also a GKIC advocate, And I learned how to coach dentists, how to coach people. And then I went to – what did I do next? Somewhere along the way, I picked up Jay Conrad Levinson and became a a certified guerrilla marketing instructor because I wanted to learn marketing techniques that didn't cost a lot of money. Hmm. And that was useful. So we just keep growing. We keep learning. And – Every time you grow, you share with other people what you're doing. And that's kind of how I've been teaching all along is I do it and I share it. I learn how to do it and I share it. Okay.
0: So so we need a good team. We all agree upon that. Everybody knows that.
1: I I call them a a group of tens. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You hire sevens and grow them into tens. Yeah, If you hire below a seven, they're not going to ever make it. So you just need to always find a quality person that's got at least, you know, certain things about them that you can count on solid.
0: Now, uh, what are those few things that we can call them as tens?
1: Well, a ten is the ultimate dental staff member. They know what you want them to know without you having to ask. They're always there. They don't not show up. They have everything ready for you before you want it. They anticipate well. They smooth out the wrinkles and, and cover the bases so you don't have to get involved in dis- discussions with patients. You know, they basically make your life easy. Right. And uh, I've got two things out of my book, The $10,000 Day Dentist, that go together. Yeah. 100% readiness and 100% now. Uh, uh, so if you're 100% ready for the procedure in the room, okay. oh, I know what it is, willingness. Okay. Had a at a brain freeze. 100% <laughs> willingness means you're willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Okay. 100% readiness means you're ready for the procedure, you're ready for the doctor, you're ready for the patient. And if you marry willingness and, and readiness, you get happiness. So yeah. I, I, I measure my happiness by having those other two things in place. If If I've got my team willing to do the things they need to do, And if they are ready when it's time to work, I'm happy. And what I find is I'm not happy is when they don't prepare, when they're not willing to do what it takes. They have excuses. And so I've got certain staff members who are always ready, always willing. I'm always happy when I work with them and I love them. They're my best people. I tell them that all the time and I brag on them in front of patients. Then I've got another couple of staff members that are never ready 100% of the time. They fail me like 30% of the time. They fail me to be ready. So I always have to wait on them to get something. And, and so those
2: And what do you those, do for
1: such, such staff members? Well, they get less bonus because okay. they get docked if they don't get ready. You know, we track all that stuff. Every procedure has a set of armamentarium. If it's not in the room when I'm ready to work, that goes down on their score. Okay. And, you know, at the end of the month, they don't get the bonus like the other guys got. They get a half a bonus.
0: Got it. So um, I'm
1: tracking things like that. And so
0: do you have like a report card for after each patient? I do. Okay.
1: I have a report card for every procedure, mm-hmm. every patient. It's turned in at the end of the day and tabulated and put on a score sheet for the week. Okay, And then that's tabulated for the month. And then we come up with a scorecard system that says, okay, you get 75% of your bonus that's possible. You get 82% of the possible bonus. You get 50% because you're such a crappy employee. And if you don't <laughs> improve, you might not be an employee one day. Uh, okay. So there's a feedback loop for the practice, employee, Everybody knows where they stand. And if they're getting 100% bonus every time, that means they are a 10.
0: Got it. Got it. So uh, for each procedure, for each visit of the patient, uh, who is going to grade such? Uh, Are you going to grade them or are they going to self-grade?
1: It it happens both ways. If I tell them to grade it and then I look at their score and I find out they're not being accurate, then that's a double negative, right? Yeah. So a lot of times they'll self-grade. Like the hygienist not being observed very much by me but their scorecard says how much additional work they did beyond what was scheduled. So in a particular day, did they increase the amount of dentistry that they were able to produce in that room beyond what was scheduled? And so we, we measure that extra add on amount, right? How much did they treatment plan out of that room to go in the restorative books for the next time that patient comes in? How much did they totally produce? You know, my, my hygienists were doing $2,300 average per hygienist per day. Okay. And so we would track those every day. And with four or five hygienists, you know, there was one high, one low and the one at the low end was always looking at the numbers the others had and it would always encourage them to go better. You know, there's peer pressure to do better. So, so
0: I'm so sorry, uh, but 2,300 in the treatment planning or, or actually producing, or actually uh, the, the hygienists are producing that much.
1: That was a daily production number.
0: Okay. And that would include SRPs and. Yeah. Whatever they did. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, that makes sense. So uh, now, do you think it's all we all can do much better numbers if we have much better patients to begin with?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things about that that you always want to strive for as a dentist. You want to attract the kind of people who want to get the nicer kind of dentistry. You know, I've always believed that if you are a dentist and you have a certain number of skills and number of hours to work, you should spend your time doing the things that are the most lucrative and the most fun. You know, you, you have a balance between fun and lucrative. Roughly the same. And so your hourly production makes a lot of difference as to what kind of patients you're treating. If you're relying on a PPO practice that only spends what their insurance will pay for and they stop at the end of the uh, insurance year to wait for the next year, then you're just doing a bunch of $1,000 treatments on people every year.
2: Yeah. So how, do
1: you,
0: how do you even convince such uh, patients um, to, to do more? Like, you know, we all know your insurance only covers blah, blah, blah. Well, I
1: I don't even pay any attention to their insurance when I'm talking to them. I always tell them this, I say, I'm going to give you a five-year plan. This is on a new patient when I first meet them. Okay. I'm going to give you a five-year plan that's going to take care of getting you healthy. And hopefully that's all you're going to need for the rest of your life or for the foreseeable future. Once you get healthy, you want to stay there for 20 years. Right. But I say to them, I don't know how long it's really going to take you to get that done, but I call it the five-year plan. It may Mm -hmm. take a week, it may take a year, five years, even 10 years. The main thing is this is what's good for you. This is what you need to be healthy and strong. And I know your goals are probably like my goals. You want to look good, feel good, and have your teeth last a long time. And I got got that quote just exactly word for word from Omer. You know, he always said, you talk to the patient and you answer their need. Talk about the time, the source, and the cost. You go through that step, step, step of figuring out what they need and how much they can afford, and then you kind of start working. Well, I start working on the patient. And don't even pay attention to the insurance. And the only time the insurance comes into play is when they say it's an issue, when they say, I can't do more. I won't treat the plan, anything based on their insurance. I'll treat the plan based on their needs. And they will raise their hand and go, I'm required to go slow because of my income. My financial situation won't allow me to go any faster. And I go, no problem. You got a five-year plan. It may take us five or 10 years to get that five-year plan done. And so I'm always telling the patient, it doesn't matter what your insurance does. We'll max it out every year. And then we'll go beyond that as much as you can afford. So my stance is never to think about insurance or rely on insurance. And I certainly don't make decisions on insurance. Patients will, though. Right. So
0: so we have such patients everywhere. Everyone has such patients. They come in. Oh, doc. As a matter of fact, recently I had this patient. We planned him to get SRPs done. And for each and every visit, he had questions about his numbers. We gave him numbers prior. And now his insurance maxed out. Right. And he wants to wait until January. Yeah. So how are you able to convince? First of all, I, when you're in a smaller town, uh, I'm sure, I don't know how big Suwannee is, but if you're in a s- smaller town, people talk, people just say, oh, that dentist, he's giving me $20,000 worth of treatment plan, right? How do you counter being, looking or sounding as a greedy dentist, if I may say? Uh, maybe it's not, but it's a real thing that we should do. Uh, how do you counter such thought process?
1: Um, well, you know, it's, it's it has to do with how you market yourself. I, I want to get into that a little bit about becoming an authority and expert status. But you basically try to attract people where money doesn't matter. Okay, that's the fir- that's the first step you try to do is to sure. set yourself aside as different, and you're not a commodity dentist, and you're not dealing with the same people that are driven by cost. Now, there's there's a marketing technique that's so bad that I really don't like it and when I have to play that game because I'm working for somebody else now, it's just weird. But they're offering coupons and they're getting people in for low cost procedures yeah. just to get them in the door. Right. Well that, that automatically attracts people who are price driven. Now even millionaires like to get a good deal. So you'll get a few nicely uh, anointed people, you know, financially with a discount. Yeah. But over the years, for about thirty eight years before I sold the practice, I never gave a discount. Other than one, I gave $100 off for a new patient when they came in, (laughs) and and I only gave $100 off on a cosmetic procedure, not the exam. So they had to pay for the full exam and X-rays and cleaning. Yeah. And then they got a $100 deal off of a crown, a denture, something cosmetic. Okay. Because cosmetics is not covered by insurance, so I wasn't going to give a $100 off of something that was covered by insurance, typically. So that was my rationale. So I did that for 38 years, and I was very successful. Uh, and then when I sold the practice, of course, my new owners had to get into the discount business. And, and so now I'm experiencing for seven years how to deal with those kind of things. And I choose to just ignore that and d- treat them like normal people. I don't treat them like discount patients. Right. You know, j- Just because they came in for a $79 special cleaning x-ray and exam, they, sh- they get the full two-hour exam. They get everything the same. And so what that leads to is my average new patient expense that they spend with me is $14,000. mm that's a big deal. It is. It is. It's called a new patient experience that I have them go through. And when they go through that exam, it's so much more than an average dentist exam that they go, wow, this is different. I'm going to pay more attention to what he says. I'm going to have more trust. I'm going to have more loyalty to this practice because I know this dentist is different. And so I set myself apart from the very beginning with an exam and it's an experience they go through, not just a normal thing. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, Panky had a big deal with their thorough exam. Yeah. And a lot of the dentists came out of that being full mouth reconstructionist and make over the whole mouth. And it was like the thing to do. Okay. And then I went through neuromuscular dentistry training also after Panky and Dawson. And so I got that training. And then I went through the implant training with Carl Misch and the AAID course. And then I went through Goldstein and Garber with the aesthetic, you know, American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry training. And what I would say is everybody should go to the national meetings of all these academies because that's where you're going to get your best training. You know, the Dental XP National Meeting is wonderful. Yeah. Okay. okay. Things like that.
0: So, um, so basically, you're saying the marketing of the dentist who owns the office in us a, in, a, in a town to make them look different is what would bring in those better better, better patients, patients. The better type patients. It's not that we should be striving for our PPO patients. Uh, uh, specifically, but we should be looking for patients who are who can afford to pay, who can build a trust uh, in what you've learned, what you can, you know, uh, get done for them. And that would be, they would be your spokesperson
1: in a similar community to bring in similar people again. Am I right yeah, to you say? yeah, you're right. When you talk about attracting patients, your PPOs are basically a marketing technique to bring people in. And so those lower fees are your marketing cost. Yeah. It's yeah. very expensive. It's expensive marketing when you talk about that. Yeah. If you could if you could market to get full fee-for-service patients that pay a higher wage to you, then you're going to have more uh, profits to spend on other fun things like lifestyle and toys for the dentist in the practice like lasers and Ceracs and things. But I always talked about the seven circles of influence, which is part of the seven mountains of marketing, which I talk about in my books. If you could become the number one dentist that people think about in an area, and, and I named seven different areas, education, government. Uh, spiritual, family, education, arts, um, business. If you're the number one dentist people think of in those different spheres of influence in a town, you get a lot of referrals. You get a lot of people that come to you because they know they if they need dentists, they think of you first. And that's a goal that you want to set in your marketing is to become known as the best in each of those people's minds. Hmm. If you're known as the best, if you're thought of as the best, you could command a higher fee.
2: Yeah. <clears throat>
0: Okay, now that, that does make a whole lot of difference because if you're attracting good amount of, good kind of patients who are willing to spend, then whatever five-year plans do you actually give it to them, you can actually accomplish it in five months, maybe. Uh, maybe nonsense. three months. Yeah, or five weeks, whatever, whatever the case may be. And then obviously that brings in, and that like, I, 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 I used, uh, usually say success breeds success. You have one success, it brings in more successful people uh, or similar mindset of people that would, oh, that's a, that's a good thing. Oh, that changed my perspective completely. now. Uh, talking about NPX, uh, I call it an NPX, new patient experience. What is, was the last, uh, place, how was your NPE in your office or in your last office where you thought it worked the way you liked it to be worked,
1: you know? Yeah, I still do the same thing in my current office, mm-hmm. but I just, I'll tell you what, it's interesting that I've got four partners, three partners actually in me, and, uh, we all do a different new patient experience. I've, I've tried to get them to duplicate mine exactly and they won't do it because they're They're just stubborn. You're young. (laughs) And they will, you know, change things, make it feel good for them. But they're only half as productive as me. Hmm. And I keep saying, you guys, look, I'm doing it this way. If you'll do it this way, you'll be twice as productive. But, you know, people just don't listen sometimes. And that's a lesson out there for you guys that are wanting to grow.
2: Yeah.
1: If it's been done, it's probably possible. And if you're not doing it, just think about what I just said. Mm -hmm. If you're not doing what somebody else is doing and you want to, you need to do what they're doing not what you think is, what is better. So, you know, if you okay. want to go to the moon and fly a spacecraft to the moon, you, you don't want to invent that technique yourself. You might fail. But if you want to do, you know, something, call up your NASA engineers and use the ones that have already been there. Got it. Um, my new experience mm-hmm. was born out of uh, Omar Reed's uh, cookbook. Okay. We took his ideas and worked them in Solstice Research Group back in the 90s and figured out how to do an exam that was bar none the best. And we worked with marketing people from Quest about curb appeal, and we worked with uh, communications people. Uh, everything along the way was helping us grow this idea of the new patient experience. And so we we have a even some stuff we put together our own psychographic analysis from Abram King. How do you evaluate where people come from, what their Belief systems are what their values and judgments are. How do you get that on a piece of paper so you know that before they come in? And so we've got a, a patient intake form that we talk about in our first book, Marketing the Million Dollar Practice, of how do you get the information out of a patient before you meet them to where you know all about them, what drives them, what moves them, what's going to motivate them to move forward. So I get that on a piece of paper before I met them, and then I can go in and talk to them with a lot more astuteness. And once I listen to them, and once they understand who we are, we understand who they are, the trust and loyalty goes way up. Huh. And they believe what I say. They don't question what I'm after. They don't think I have ulterior motives. And for the most part, people get what I recommend. And that's not common in every dental office, that patients automatically get what the doctor recommends. And if you do the new patient experience correctly, the way I think it ought to be done, you'll have a lot more success than if you just bring them in through hygiene and have a five-minute quick exam and you know, tell them they need two crowns here and a fill-in here, and then you don't tell them anything else. You, you know, there's a whole concept of dentistry out there that you tell them a little bit so they don't get scared. And they come back next time, tell them a little bit. So get that done. When I get that done, tell them a little bit more. And you're piecemealing their dentistry all the way for, you know, two or three years. Well, patients talk behind closed doors and say, you know, my dentist always finds something wrong. Huh. He's never finished. And that, that's because they don't give them the whole treatment plan on the first day.
0: Right. I and
1: agree. so my, my belief system is you don't lie to people. You tell them how bad they are. You tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth and you tell them how to get to be ideal. Now, if they don't want to be ideal, then you say, okay, plan B, we make you safe, we make you sound, but you're not ideal. And then you'll get that phase dentistry done and say, okay, now that you're safe and sound, we can go for ideal. And that might be a year later, two years later.
0: So um, if you were to, you know, open up uh, a little bit about new patient experience, you know, a couple of steps. So the patient walks in, you get this patient intake form as you've mentioned in your first book, and then you read through, and then what happens? Like, if you don't mind sharing. Um, uh, the secret sauce? Not the secret sauce. You know, there, people can still, it's hard to, as you say, it's hard to implement without actually having the mindset. The mindset is more important than the secret sauce uh, before anybody can actually implement it. But uh, we can call it a secret sauce.
1: What you have to do is you have to dedicate the time in your schedule for this to happen. And I figured out a way to do it so that I could see a lot of patients without being bogged down. And a lot of dentists don't do that. They get bogged down with new patients, and they think that they have to do quick exams to be able to see these patients. And I used to see 50 patients a month, new patients myself. And so I figured out a system where my staff did most of the work, and I just came in for parts of it. And so I have the patient go on a tour of the office before they tour the mouth. And we sit down in a a room outside of the operatory for a pre-interview after the tour, And I go over the health history and some interesting information and learn who they are, personal facts about them and what they want to accomplish. And then I invite them to come for my exam. And we're always gaining their uh, agreement to go to the next step. And we always talk about the five-year plan. We always talk about what their goals are. And If we can meet their felt need on that first appointment, we do that. And if they come in with a toothache, they're not going through the full new patient exam they're going to go into an abbreviated exam and go in for the tooth to get yeah. it fill, filled or pulled or root canaled, yeah. whatever it takes. And so the preliminary interview is very critical, and that's the one step that most of my um, friends that don't get the results don't do. They, they go on the abbreviated tour, then they start doing the exam. Hmm. But the, inter- the interview is critical, and uh, I'll sometimes – so that the practice management of the system works. Sometimes I'll have the staff take the records, you know, photographs, radiographs, panorex, charting, even probing by the hygienist. I'll have them do all that before I come and do the exam. Other times I'll go straight in from the pre-interview into the exam and I'll do the clinical exam imperial probing before they get the records. So it it can flow either way and I'm not worried that I have the pictures or the x-rays in advance. Hmm. And that makes my day flow better if I have flexibility. Yeah. We always say, and I say it all the time, flexible in procedure, you know, firm in principle, flexible in procedure. Got it.
0: Got it. Well, there's a, I, I think, why do you think patients, not, not patients in here, uh, why do you think the dentists are not accepting this mindset uh, of following up this new patient exam?
1: I think they think it's too expensive of their time. To, they're, they're thinking it takes too much time to dedicate to just talking to a patient. Okay, and they want to be in there clinically drilling on teeth, not talking to a patient, because they think it's not productive enough. The time is they not productive enough. They don't think the production is worth the time. Well, you know, the number speaks themselves. My average case is fourteen thousand. Their average case might be five thousand or four thousand. Right. And you you get what you put out. Mm-hmm. I put out. that People are going to get a good dentistry, and I tell the patient, you know, this is what's best for you, and got it. They believe it, and, mm-hmm. and I believe it. You know, we're we're not. We're not skimping on anything. If they've got missing teeth, they're getting implants. Got it. If got they've it. got no bone, they're getting bone to get implants. Hmm. If they've got crooked teeth, they're getting Invisalign or orthodontic braces, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: I've done orthodontic full banded braces for 38 years. Hmm. So there's no, there's no sweat to put on braces, no sweat to do root canals, no sweat to take out wisdom teeth. So those things just happen and they don't get referred out for simple procedures like that. So it
0: goes back to. Uh, learning all the tips and tricks, uh, tip uh, you know, tricks of the trade and learning all those procedures alongside so that, you know, a patient who comes in is not actually referred out, but, you know, you're taking care of everything, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Well, the decathlon
1: dentistry is definitely my bailiwick. I preach it to everybody that they should look at being one if they really enjoy doing everything. Got it. Sometimes you don't enjoy doing things. You'll stop doing it. And you know, a guy will come to my 5M mastermind and they'll say, I want to be busier. I want to be more productive. And I say, well, show me what procedures you do. Okay. And they'll say, well, I don't like doing root canals, so I don't do that. I send those out. I don't know how to do implants, and they look too hard, so I'm not going to do that. Wow. I'm not going to do those wisdom teeth because they, they scare me. So I started looking at all the procedures where I make my most money, and I go, well, here's why you're not productive. You don't like doing things that enough money. to make the money. Yeah. You know, it takes twice as many patients to do the work if you do a few procedures, so you've got to market twice as hard to get yeah. got it, that number of patients. Mm. Makes sense. And my cost of marketing is a lot better. Because I can do everything a patient needs.
0: Yeah, your your average patient is fourteen thousand. If you even if you spend five hundred bucks to get one patient in, a good patient in, you know you, you just make it in one shot like fourteen grand.
1: Sure. Yeah, so, a lot of dentists don't think that way, but you know your, your marketing dollars are attracting certain types of people, and it's what you can deliver. Yeah. If you got five things on your shelf that you can sell people, you're not going to make a lot of profit. But right. if you're Walmart, you make yeah. a little profit on everything. You're doing good.
0: Got it. So either it's a volume, either you do volume or you do less. Either way. If you're doing volume, then then also you can make money, and that could be your path to success. You're still making money versus you're doing less, just like Dr. Bill, uh, but you're doing less, but making maybe same or more money.
1: Yeah, I don't choose to do less dentistry. You know, that's the one thing I've kind of not done. I haven't limited my scope of practice. I still do fillings. Hmm. I, still, I still do SRP, uh, laser dentistry. I still do root canals hmm. more than I want to, but – um. I still okay. I do more and more all-on-fours and full-mouth reconstructions and sleep appliances. So there are some high-end ticket things that I do. Sure. Got it. Uh,
0: I was reading um, about uh, something online about one of your websites, and it says a well-designed day becomes the blueprint of your calendar for success. Yeah, yeah. So what would you mean by a well-designed day?
1: Well, this is the well-designed day.
0: Oh, okay. Your book. Okay,
1: so it starts out. Having a goal of ten thousand a day, okay, or whatever you want it to be. I mean, it could be any number. I only picked ten because that was my average over about fifteen years, and I go, that's the number that sticks with people.
2: Yeah,
1: it it could be five or fifteen or twenty. So I know dentists doing twenty a day.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. In
1: this country, every day they do at least twenty.
2: Yeah, on average. Mm-hmm.
1: But um, a well designed day is one where you start off well, and I have a system three and three, three patients in the chair at eight o'clock. Okay. And I don't want to have two. I don't want to have one. I want three. Okay. And I tell my staff, I'm not excited about anything in life except starting off the day well. Cool. And I have a morning huddle. It's 7.50 to 8 o'clock. It's 10 minutes. It's on purpose. Specific things are said and done. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody participates. It's kind of, you know, just a nice little huddle. Yeah. I want the patient seated at 8.01 in all three rooms if they've showed up. And if they don't show up, you know, that's a different situation.
2: Yeah.
1: But – Three patients starting at eight means you've got your machine cranking. Yeah, and you've got productive in one room, sort of productive in another room, and no production probably in another room. Right. Seat crowns, do ortho check. And ortho checks are not productive unless you start. You know, I, I, I bill out an ortho case when I start it. So every every one, but the first one is non productive. And so we have a whole column filled up with a TMJ ortho that's we call non productive stuff, and some seat crowns post-op checks and things. So that's kind of a, a column. And then we've got a column of, of fillings and, and root canals extractions. That's the middle. And then the big stuff is the implants and the crown and bridge stuff. Right. Every day, you know, you just set a goal. And uh, one thing we're famous for is we always produce 20 to 30, 40% more than our goal every, every day. Hmm. If I, if I, when I say goal, we set a goal of 10,000. We might only have seven booked, but we always finish with 10 or 11. I got if it. We, if we've got 10 on the books, we'll do 12 or 13. So it's, there's always more worked in than is scheduled. We don't have a problem with people breaking appointments hardly at all. Got it. That's, that's one of the beautiful things I find about being an older dentist mm-hmm. with, limited, with limited ability to be seen. I'm only there two days a week, and people better not cancel on me or they won't get an appointment. And so I think that is a thing that my staff has drilled into the patients. Either that or my staff is so afraid that I'll get upset with them that they <laughs> filled the thing up before I found out they canceled <laughs> on me. Because I don't ever have any openings in my schedule. (laughs) And that doesn't happen for most dentists. And it used to not happen for me. You know, I used to have a few openings, but now it's just solid. Every day is just like eight to five is solid. I understand. And and nothing that has to do with expectation. It has to do with the fact that I'm only working two days a week, too. Uh, They don't have to work as hard to pull when it's just that many days. Yeah, yeah. It's the benefit of being old.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, when you have so much experience, you know, uh, it acts. When we are younger, we are more energetic. So that compensates for our, of our doing dentistry. We can still get away with doing the same root canals in a similar amount of time. When we get older a little bit, we, don't, we are not that fast, uh, energetic, energy-wise, but at least we have more experience. So we still finish faster, right? By the time we are at <laughs> your experience level, I think we just know we've seen it all, and now we know what we should be focusing on and uh, still do much faster. Am I right to say it that way?
1: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Uh, there's a big difference I've seen. I've had 18 associates and worked with
2: mm-hmm. others
1: since I became the associate. You know, we worked together, four yeah. of us as associates for the owner. I see a lot of difference in dentists, and we're not all the same. I used sure. to think I could I could clone myself. I used to think I could create another one of me to take over for me or to buy the practice from me or to be my partner equally, and I never found anybody who could do what I do. And so I've, I realized that not all of us were created totally equal. Either in the drive or the organization or the skills. And so I had to settle for just whatever I could get as far as associates. And a lot of them are very good. A lot of them are very talented. But you're never going to clone yourself to have an equal in every area. Some of them might even be better than you in some areas, but they're not going to be the same. And so cloning doesn't work. So (laughs) if that's something people think, I'm going to find somebody like me to take over, forget that.
0: That's not going to happen.
1: Never. Yeah. Especially if you're a high end type of guy. You know, everybody's just different. did even two high end guys are not the same. Got it. Got it.
0: What was um, the question you asked just before? Well, we were talking about uh, basically uh, what was your uh, plan? Like how can we do a well-designed plan or a well-designed day? That's what we were talking about.
1: Yeah, you just, you just basically tell your staff what you want to happen and you say this yeah. is the perfect day. Mm-hmm. And then you just repeat it over and over again. Got it. Got it. So
2: now if you take, if you take
1: a perfect day and you do it every day of the month, that's a great month. And when I do my mastermind, I teach them how to do the $10,000 a day plan. And so every dentist that goes through my mastermind has their best month ever within a month or two or three of time, time they start with us. And, of course, if they do that several times during the year, their best month ever, they have the best year they've ever had. Sure, sure. And so I always tell people, if you have the best day, the best month, the best year, pretty soon you're going to add up. It'll be your best career. Got it. No, that does make sense. You know, that
0: does make sense. Um, now, what would you expect? For example, you're going to hire an associate right today, right? For your, one of your good offices, let's say you hire me, right? What would you expect me to do uh, in your office when you're hiring me as an associate?
1: Well, you'd be a great associate. You know, you've got much more going for you than a lot of people. I can tell that because you're um, on the leading edge of doing stuff. I would expect a lot out of you. I would, (laughs) thank you. I, I would give you as many patients as you could possibly want to see. Okay. And so, that typically means a new associate is going to, if they're not just out of school, but they're experienced like you are, mm-hmm. I would say that you would need 30 to 40 new patients in a month. Right. With that 30 or 40 new patients with experience, you'll be doing about 70 to 80,000 the first couple of months. And then yeah. you'll, in about six months, you'll be at 100,000. And in a couple of years, you'll be doing 125, 150 a month.
2: Hmm.
1: So that's kind of a volume thing that I've seen with my associates is The new guys coming out of school, well, there's a pattern they have. That's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. Every month they grow about 10 gram Hmm. until they get to about 70. Then they kind of level off because their skills are just not there. Okay. And they've got to go get some more skills to get over 70 typically. Sure. Most new new guys out of school can't get 100 in a month. Sure. Most of them. Yep. I agree. Residents coming out of a residency, uh, GPRs and things will go quite a bit faster than those who just came out of dental school. So, you, you know, I always hire uh, GPR residencies, especially implant and sedation residency people, if I can hire, hire them out of those. I've done three of the last four dentists I've hired have been right out of uh, residencies. Got it. Just because they produce more. Fair enough. But
0: what are the qualities that you might be looking in in an associate um, that you think, I think your answer would help the new associates to work towards those qualities uh, to be more productive. That's what my eventual goal is asking you with the question. Um, what do you think the qualities that new dentists or, you know, uh, recent three to five years old dentists uh, have? I think you have to have a
1: mixture between uh, desire to have quality results and the desire to uh, be um, fearless and challenge, be assertive enough to not be too mild and meek. Yeah. A lot of of the younger dentists are afraid to do things. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, if you're if you're looking to hire an associate, if you're an owner and you're looking to hire an associate, you should evaluate them on uh, psychometric scales. You know, we've used uh, certain measurement tools that measure their personality, their attitudes, their the communication styles, their belief systems. If you can measure people and understand them better before you hire them, you'll be farther ahead. And there's certain things you want to avoid when you're hiring people. Uh-huh. And if you're if you're a, associate type dentist wanting to be hired, then you need to really understand that there's a type of dentist who's more successful than others based on a few of these parameters. What if you could develop yourself in these areas to be successful? Uh, we do a training in our 5A mastermind based on um, how you interact with other people. Okay. You know, that that's important that you actually are not just technically trained, but you're socially trained.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Got it. It's
1: important. Yeah. You know, if you're a, a good communicator, a good leader, a, a good manager, is not something that you're born with. You, you have to be trained up on those things. Uh-huh.
0: And anything that they can do to, uh, you know, go a step up. You know, obviously, five million mastermind is uh, the solace academy is the one that would make the big, huge leap and difference. But you know, just low hanging fruit for uh, the recent associate to
1: make themselves better to be. Yeah, more- we, we've got a bunch of little trainings. Online that you can do that okay. don't cost as much,
2: mm-hmm. you know.
1: And our solstice.academy Academy, we've got tons of little, tiny little courses at five dollars, twenty dollars, thirty dollars, hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Those kind of things you could access and learn. Okay. You could of course read the books. Sure. Uh, my son Tyler's doing a great job of working with people because he's worked with me for ten years, and he's gone uh, into development of things on his own. Mm. And uh, I've been very impressed with what he's done because he's kind of tackling the job of staff communication. Okay. And he's become an expert. He's a, he's a uh, trained, high-performance coach. Nice. And so he works with dental staff members and the doctors to communicate better.
0: Yeah.
1: And so it it sets expectations of the staff and the doctors to each other. Got it. Tremendous help. So I would look at what we're doing with that. I mean, it's, it's connected to what we're doing, but it's separate because it's Tyler's own business. It's, it's, it's a good thing for him to uh, sp- spread his wings and fly. You know, he's, uh, he's his own man. He's doing his thing.
0: I got it. So uh, what else, um, how does a 5 million mastermind uh, works? Uh,
1: how could somebody be a part of that,
0: uh, the mastermind?
1: Well, we start a class a year and it starts in January. Okay. We'll typically go two days in January, two days in May, two days in uh, September, October, somewhere. So it's two days at a time at my house okay. for about eight dentists. And so I fill a class up, and we run it through the year. You know, if I had enough interest in people, I'd do two classes a year. So there's there's a chance to do more than eight. But basically, I do never a big class. It's always just who if it's around my dining table. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the limit of how big the class is, because we're sitting there talking and we're we're going over each guy's practice in detail. We have what's called a hot seat. Okay. And so the the dentist of the of that hour sits at the head of the table, and we talk about their practice. He. Or she gives all the data. We put stuff on the board, the whiteboard, conditions, problems, opportunities, and then finally the prescription. And so the the prescription is what we think as a group they need to do in the next ninety days, hundred days. Got it. And then they they go home and do those things, and they come back and report next time. And then we do another hot seat to see what's going to happen the next hundred days. Got it. So if you do if you do that three times, and then we have the uh, monthly coaching calls, and we have the online academy, which is a guided thing for your staff, all that. Leads to massive growth when people implement the things that we talk about in the uh, online program, in the manuals and workshop materials that we give them, plus in the prescription at Potseat, and you you're talking among each other all throughout the year too with uh, follow up calls between the members. Yeah, a year with us, you know, is typically going to grow a practice two hundred to four hundred thousand. Sometimes they've grown five or six hundred thousand in a year. Sometimes one guy grew a million in a year. So it, it depends on the type of practice and what you got going on is how much you'll grow I've also had a few that didn't grow but 100,000 because they didn't do much okay. I'll tell you there's a difference between dentists and it's not just in what they do in the office it's what they do outside the office and how much they prepare and how much they focus and it's always up to the dentist to produce the result right? Sure, sure. It's never up to the patient to produce a result it's not up to the coach to produce the result it's always the dentist it has to be the one who's setting the priorities and acting on all the information they're given I understand Understand. Um,
0: um, and we were certainly talking about your 5 million mastermind and what the new associates can actually, um, uh, where they can start to just get a taste of what you have to offer at 5 million mastermind. Uh, because not everybody can spend, I don't know how much expensive that is, but, uh, you know, a mastermind group certainly would not be cheap,
1: uh yeah, as an investment, people sometimes look at the cost of a class that you go to and say, what's my best return on investment? Should I know, go to an implant class or to a practice management course or to a marketing course or to this mastermind? And by f- all means, I've found that the mastermind is the number one ROI of any course I took over my uh, 40 years. So yeah, you were with you the, know, Dr. Omar, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, well, I've been to five or six masterminds, and because of that, I always grew quite a bit, and um, I remember one that I went back in 2004. Dr. Charlie Martin was teaching a mastermind with a lot of Kane Waters people. Okay. We, had, we had people in the room, you know, like 20 dentists, and um, a little bit too big for a mastermind, but still was effective. And I got two big gems from that mastermind hmm. that pro- propelled me to be producing – from 8,000 a day to 10,000 a day, just those two gyms. And so I know that if you can teach people 10 gyms, they will grow four or 5,000 a day. And so that's what I set up my mastermind to do is to figure out what the people are missing. And once they are able to implement a certain thing, they'll grow to a certain level. And I don't think any dentist should be less than 10,000 a day. I agree. I completely agree.
0: Now, uh, you were saying there's a typical growth of two hundred to four hundred thousand, you know, in your uh, among the dentists. How how many years have you've been doing this? Fa- this uh, five million masterminds.
1: I did the online version for uh, for the ten years, and I've done the in off in okay. in house version for five years.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, and now, what has been, you know, the two extremes. You know, the bare minimum, what, you know, uh, dentists have grown to the maximum. Like you said, one million somebody did. Uh, yeah,
1: one Yeah, one of my buddies, uh, probably I shouldn't have his name, but, you know, he's in the south. I'll put that way. Oh, cool. He did great. And then um, he, he actually went to two million, from zero to two million in two and a half years. So he's in you know, a startup practice. A lot of dentists that like out of New York, you know, they've they've grown four hundred thousand one year, five hundred the next year. So what I find is that dentists that go through our program grow more the second year than the first year. Okay. Because they've had a year to implement and the systems are running smooth, and and it takes a year just to understand what we're talking about. Second year is um, a lot more smooth in terms of ironing out some of the issues and it's, we, we, we don't even train people on everything the first weekend. We got three weekends we spend with them. Yeah. So it takes time. And um, group practices, of course, can grow more than solo typically because they've got extra hands on that. And so you might have a two-man group go to a three-man group and that spurs growth. Uh, if a dentist wants to expand their practice – Add associates. Then the mastermind is a really nice idea. If they want to stay solo, it's still an okay idea, but it's just a little more difficult to grow. You know the bigger numbers. If you're already very successful, you can still grow. That's the thing. A lot of dentists think, "Well, I've already maxed out. I'm peaked." Okay. No, you're you're not. You know, unless unless you're doing twenty thousand per day average, you're not peaked out. Makes sense. Okay, got it. So. Uh, is it
0: a fair assumption to say the the lower end increase would be one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand a year, and the higher end could be as high as a million a year?
1: Yeah, I would I would not use the million mark because it's so rare. I would, <laughs> I, I, would I would go half million would be the high end for the average high end. I had a lot of guys grew a half million, but um, nobody's it. ever lost money. Nobody's ever. Even broken even they 've always made money. Um, I had one guy who was way in debt, and he's actually created a plan to get out of debt, and he did, so you know everybody has a different goals.
0: got it. Um, that reminds me of uh, my conversation with one of my friends. He is uh, in Texas, and he was like, "Hanks, I want to get out of my debt. I have like five hundred thousand as a debt and I said, "Let me ask you what 's going on and he actually started talking to me. He's got three offices now. Uh, two of them he bought uh, the land too, so he has the real estate along with the office all paid for. He, and the third office he paid he paid for it, and he has only five hundred thousand in terms of the student loan debt, you know, federal student loan debt. Um, he's already bought his house pretty much. He's bought his car pretty much. I was like, you're not in debt, man. I mean, that's my way of
1: saying it. He's in the catbird seat. <laughs> that guy's got a smart brain. Yeah. And he's doing it right. He's doing you it know, right. <laughs> a lot of dentists don't have that mindset to expand too quickly. Yeah. I've, I've warned some dentists, don't expand so quickly because you'll, you'll end up having to uh, eat the debt. Right. So there are people that try to do too much. Hmm. There now, needs to be a smartness about what you're doing all right, um
0: I think um I was reading about your book again, going back to your book i I think I have to ask you this um uh, Naomi, the co founder of smart practice, you know uh she yeah. said, uh, you have a prophetic plan for increased productivity now <laughs> I think I know what it means, but I'm sure uh it it's it's so rare for somebody you know of that caliber to write something uh prophetic about it uh what would you say uh she meant by- And Naomi
1: Naomi is Homer's sister, you know that? Oh really? Interesting. Yeah. There so you go. I know I know Naomi from a lot of ways, you know, and sure. we spent time with her in Maui. Yeah. Maui Maui magic took my whole team out there several times. And uh, she's just been a good friend of dentistry for over 35, 40 years herself. And she's a, a noted speaker, and, and uh, she's a strong Christian. And so she knows my belief system. She knows that I am a faith-based dentist, okay. that I do not mind sharing my faith with people. In every book I write, I try to put a little bit in there about where I get my strength from where I get my ideas from. A lot of them are dreams that come from heaven. A lot of them are answer to prayers. You know, I I sat on a cruise, a Viking River cruise, from Amsterdam to uh, Budapest. When I wrote this book, I would come to a chapter, and I would sit on the boat before everybody got up at about 5 o'clock in the morning sometimes, going down the river, and I would say a, a little prayer about, you know, what is it that you want me to say in this chapter? Hmm. And the answer would actually come to me. What do dentist need to know? And that answer would come to me, and I would write it down. And so half that book was inspired by just asking the question, what's next? What's next? What does dentists need to know? And so when, when I say that there's a prophetic, or when oh, Naomi recognized it, when there's a prophetic prescription for success, a lot of what I write comes because of my belief systems and, and the fact that I am guided by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Interesting. So, so basically, it
0: has uh, a religious belief in uh, the power, whether it's your universe, whether it's a god, whatever, whoever you believe in, is, exactly is actually guiding you
1: uh, like a prophet.
0: Interesting. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I think Naomi and I recognized that in my writings, and that's where she picked that up from. Great, that's um, that's an interesting twist there.
0: Uh, (laughs) Now, I'm sure people would ask you uh, what is your definition of success, and I want to get there too. But before that, I get there, I want to, uh, with your experience in. So much, dentistry, life, family. Um, I want to hear what are your, what, what kinds of definitions, different kinds of definitions of success that you've heard in your uh, long career, whether it's in life or dentistry?
1: Well, you know, Bob Lavoy started out saying the $100,000 practice is the definition of success back in the 60s. Okay, if you can have a practice that produces one hundred thousand year success, right? Well, you know, fine. I know guys that have done that in a day now. <laughs> That's just because times change and fees change. but the the idea of success is not just monetary,
2: yeah
1: i I tend to speak a lot in numbers because numbers can't lie. You know, yeah, they're not they're not airy fairy, They're concrete. And so we do KPIs on our staff and our team, and I measure things between dentists by numbers. And I always talk about $10,000 a day, for instance, the dentist production only, not the staff, not the hygienist, not the other associates, just the dentist. So I want to have a clean picture of what a dentist is doing and what their goals are. So everybody has a separate goal, everybody on the team. So that's kind of one thing about success. You can have a number success, and there's no right or wrong number. It's just whatever you set it at. And if you hit your goals, then you can say, I'm successful right. in where I am because that's where I want to be. I always have a, a picture, too, of success being doing what you want, when you want. And that means you don't always have to work. You, you could have time for yourself, time for your family, time for your uh, spiritual devotionals, time for self. You know, I always look at Panky's Cross of Life and go, that's a good balance. You know, you want work, play, self and family uh, or spiritual and family. And to me, I want to figure out how to work a lot smarter so I could have a lot more time off. That was, um, that was always one of my goals is I want to take off a lot of time. And most of my time I took off was doing CE early. And lately, it's been seeing my family, my, my children. Uh, I have two boys. One of them lives in London, England, and one lives in Nashville. So I want to go see them. And I want to visit with my grandchildren. Sure. And when I do that, that's time away from the dental practice. So I need to be very productive on the days I'm working, so that I can do those things without financially uh, harming the family. The you know the long-term retirement plan has to be successful, even though I'm out traveling the world. Got it. So basically, you're saying the same. You're saying the
0: thing uh, that making good money, right, Um, and still having time to spend time with your uh, family, uh, grandchildren, you know, and so on. So that would, be, that would be your definition of success.
1: Yeah, if my wife feels like I'm giving her enough time, if uh-huh. my children feel like they're getting enough time, if I've got money in the retirement fund, building up steadily. Yeah. If I uh, personally get time off to go rejuvenate, <laughs> you know, I'm a scuba diver, so I always would like to go scuba diving once a year. Yeah. Um, uh, things that I enjoy doing, I want to get away from kids and wives periodically <laughs> and actually do things that I like to do. So my thing is college football. I like to watch football. My team has been good. It's been bad. But, you know, I went to Auburn. So, you know, we've been on the top and we've been a little lower than the top. Yeah. And it's, it's fun to have a thing to follow and cheer for and go to games. So you you rally around things you like. My okay. son l- likes racing. He's a, a automobile race car driver. Yeah. And he's a country music singer. Uh-huh. And and he's a motivational wow. speaker. Wow. And he he's a dental coach. And he does a lot of things. And so yeah,
0: I think um I have to I have to pick Tyler brain too then, you know, someday, you know, if, yeah. if I could, you know. Uh, it would be Uh, I think uh, everybody can certainly use uh, the communication skills. You know, they can always do better, either in dentistry or even in real life, you know, talking, negotiating. You can always do better just by uh, uh, communicating better. And I'm uh, completely, there's so many people who are uh, successful. I'm talking to just like you, and I'm learning from them. And pretty much everybody has has told the same thing. You know, communication is the key. Uh, how can you – so maybe Tyler is going to be my next uh, uh, next person in the hot seat, I should say.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, excellent. Well, he's, he's coming along good. I, um, we're both doing the uh, Dental Work-Life Balance Summit this week. Oh, cool. And it's going to be something that Audie Cashin has put together. If you all don't know Audie, he's um, a son of a dentist who has made his life choice to be helping dentists. Have work-life balance. That's his job. He coaches dentists, so um, he's put together a, a virtual summit where you've got 30 of dentistry's best speakers.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I saw. I think I saw that on uh, Facebook. Uh, I'll be happy to put it on uh, uh, as a link. Uh, would there be a recording somewhere? If if uh,
1: yeah, yeah. If you go to the link that I gave you, yeah, uh, you'll see my link. And you can use that one. It'll. I'll send it to you separately too. But sure. it's basically a link where you can get the recordings after the summit's over. Great, great. I think um, uh, we'll put that all in the show notes. Um, uh,
0: now, going back to what you actually do, you do pretty much everything. Now, I was surprised you being a dentist and uh, you're talking about
1: skincare, like renew. <laughs> what do you mean talking about it? I'm I'm using it. You see this? What is it? Renew 28? Uh, no, I put this on. That's my baby face. <laughs> I use it every day. So, you see this?
0: Okay, I, I, see, see, a, a, I see
1: a redox. I, okay. Yeah, I use that every day. Um, the only reason I talk about it is because I've seen miracles happen with it. I've seen things that I never thought would ever happen. And so it caught my attention a year ago when Dr. Osler, one of the founders of AOSH, told me about it. And I go, Well, that's pretty good. That That is amazing, actually, what he told me. Okay. Uh, it, had to, it had to do with somebody that he was uh, connected to, his family and got over their uh, serious seizures that had been plaguing them for, you know, 30 years. Uh-huh. They had a miracle. And um, we started researching the redox signaling molecule and the science, and it's only been available for about 10 years. You know, the Nobel Peace, not peace, Nobel Science and Medicine Award was given to the guy who who came up with uh, the use and stabilization of of one of the redox molecules, and it was nitric oxide, which led, of course, to the creation of Viagra and all the other similar drugs. Yeah. Well, Well, this molecule that's in this bottle includes 20 redox signaling molecules one of them is nitric oxide okay so there's 20 different molecules in here that are derivatives of different molecules related to the uh, cell signaling technique and so I started studying that and I go this is amazing this is something that everybody can use and so I started using it personally and I got some great results you know skin looks better uh, scars go away Uh, actinic keratosis go away Uh, you know i used to have basal cell carcinomas cut off the nose and frozen off the forehead and i haven't had any of that since i started using this how long long have you been uh, using it one year i only found out about it one year ago so i started talking about it about nine months ago and i've lectured all over the world since that time and i always tend to mention it i've been in Uh, lectures in Hanoi, Vietnam, Havana, Cuba, um, Atlanta, Georgia, with uh, Yahav, uh, Amos Yahav of Israel. Yeah, yeah. So every one of those places, I've found a way to introduce this to dentistry, and that's one of my goals, is to introduce redox signaling to dentistry. Me and uh, Dr. Osler are really the two dentists who really – feel that this is the future for us, and we want to take that position in dentistry to mention it, to talk about it, and hopefully let people understand it. I use it in surgery all the time to heal my patients. Mm. It doubles the rate of healing.
0: No, no, no. Uh, uh, Surgery, what
1: kind of surgery? Like an
0: implant surgery or something?
1: Yeah. yeah. If you give a patient pre-op liquid to drink, and they drink about two ounces to four ounces, a day, and then they continue using it after surgery, they're going to heal with less pain and much quicker. Huh. Like I had a, a, a guy talking at our house the other day to a group of us, and he said he had like 17 teeth pulled and had about seven, eight implants placed, and he had no pain post-op other than about a week of ibuprofen he had no opioids. Oh yeah, I think I saw that video. Yeah. I think I saw that video. So th- this is getting to be pretty common and I'm getting case after case where people don't have the big pain, they they heal fast. And it started out I did it for my my sister-in-law cuz I I did the same thing for her, you know, did about seven extractions and four implants and put some immediate low teeth in there. And she woke up the next morning from the surgery and never had a minute's pain, never took an ibuprofen even. Wow. And uh, she was on it preoperatively for a while and a postoperative. So once people get on this, it helps every cell in the body do what it's supposed to do. Got it. It, it signals the cell to operate like it was meant to. And uh, what we find is that the uh, in- the inflammation pathways are – non-destructive. There's, there's a NFR2 pathway that is very helpful. And there's another one There's another one that's not helpful. It destroys the tissue. And so you avoid the destruction, but you maintain the good inflammation pathway. Got it. Uh, a lot, a lot of good stuff coming out of this. And I, I'm lecturing on it all over the place. And you'll be able to uh, follow me along on a uh, dental work-life balance. You might have an hour on it. I'm talking to Wisdom Study Club in December. It might be about two or three hours of time on that one. Got it. Interesting. So <clears throat> that's interesting. Uh,
0: I think uh, that goes to the next question. Um, after your five, 5 million mastermind, what else are you working on these days? Uh, what are you yeah. looking to do next?
1: Yeah, I've, I've kind of decided I wear three hats and I, I teach dentists how to be better dentist and manage better practices. I teach dentists wellness and health, uh, primarily related to the uh, redox signaling, and I and of course I work in the practice. So that's three things I do, and I'm cutting back on the plan to be clinically as active. You know, I'll cut back from two days a week to maybe uh, three days a month, four days a month instead of eight. Yeah, and then I'll uh, you know I teach dentists to slow down the way they want to. And so I'm experimenting with the different ways to slow down. How can I do that and still maintain my joy of seeing patients? I love seeing patients. and love doing things. How can I have joy and never quit? You know, <laughs> some dentists want to quit and some don't really want to quit. They love it. And so that's my expectation is that I'll experiment with what I want to do. And if it feels good, I'll do it. Got it. Interesting. I think one, one day a week, is probably fine. Uh, maybe I'll do three days one week and not work for three weeks. <laughs> All right. That's, I think, uh,
0: please uh, let us know about uh, the future results of your experiments and what works for uh, uh You can only you. do
1: that after your money's in the bank. You know, you got to have enough to retire on to start doing it as a hobby. And that's really what dentistry is. When you get older, you have your, your stash in, in a place that's not dangerous, you know, You're not working to fund it. You're working just to keep your hand in it. And that's where I am right now. Well, this is funny you said that because um, to be honest, for the past
0: three years, maybe four years, I've had this uh, uh, feeling when I was trying to be a part of um, uh, Internet world. You know, everything is online these days. And uh, I see so many successes in Internet world that people are making money even when they're sleeping, even when they are on vacation, you know. Um, and I think uh, it had been pretty evasive for me as of now. But uh, somehow I feel that uh, dentistry only makes you money uh, when you are working, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, if, if so, not everybody is as talented as you to make 20000 a day or uh, 15000 a day, but for most part, it's uh, not every every dentist is able to do that. But what I'm trying to come at is, I don't like that aspect of it, and um, I don't know how and what we could do to uh, to have a new side gig. That's probably what the people are talking about these days. Uh, do you have um, any mindset, or do you have any anything to add to? To the side gig and and the thought process going, in this yeah,
1: area. I actually started the side gig talk, but I didn't call it that. I call it multiple sources of income, MSIs. Yeah. Back in the '90s, when I studied with Bob Proctor, okay, he went he went on to write The Secret and became famous out there on the West Coast with that. But I studied with Bob and Bernie, his buddy, back in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, back in uh, the '90 early '90s. And we were looking for multiple sources of income back then. And, you know, I was pretty successful. I was, that 10-year period, I was doing multi-level marketing all over the world. Huh. Made some money, but, I, you know, I kind of decided I would go back to dentistry full-time in the in the 2000s. And that's when the story of the growth of Swanish started. But I've always believed multiple sources of income is good, a side gig. And uh the ASEA Redox story is one of my side gig stories. Mm. And uh I fully expect that that'll be a six-figure income by the end of the next year or two. And it'll be a seven-figure income within three or four years. And so I, I'm teaching dentists how to have side gigs that can replace dentistry. Interesting. And, and you can do that with intention it's not an accident it's, it's work but if you enjoy teaching people if you enjoy the health discussions that i'm having every day right with, with people getting better from things that are um considered not possible you know hmm. you, you, i've got patients not patients i've got family members with autistic and alzheimer's and uh GI problems and circulatory problems and all these things. And I've got people that are getting better. And so I tell people, listen, this redox signaling can heal and help everything that is going on in the body. So it would be beneficial if you knew about it. And when we start learning about it, we see opportunities open up for our income because you're sharing this information with people and they want it. And every time somebody buys a tube of it, there's a commission made somewhere. And so if you, tell, if you tell enough people, it adds up And, yeah, and that's kind up. of where that's where it ends up. If you are an educator, you can teach people. Got it. No, thank you. Thank you for um,
0: uh, opening that up. Um, so uh as as we've di- were discussing about Tim Ferriss in the past, I like to talk about uh, Tim ferriss inspired questions now, if that's okay, okay with you. Um, you can take as much time as you need to answer them or, you know, uh, or you can be as concise as possible, whatever works for you. So what is your morning ritual um, when you get up in the morning?
1: I've got two. Okay, great, great. I've got two. One is when I'm going to dental office and one is when I'm not. So, you know, I, I, I do it a little differently, of course. Yeah. So you want to elaborate on one of them, or maybe both? Yeah, the day that I'm uh, going to dental practice is a pretty simple routine one. I'm up at 6, I brush my teeth, I have a shower, I shave, I put the Renew 28 on, I do the drinking <laughs> of the Redox, I get dressed, I have coffee, and my Optivia, which okay. is a, a diet that I got on. I used to weigh 238, and I got down to 190. Okay. And I kind of now fluctuate around uh, 200. Okay. So I basically found that if I work with a a diet system, I'm better off than if I'm eating the the regular food that just happens. And so to keep my current weight, I kind of mix half food and half diet systems. Okay. And so when I go to work, I just make it a habit to eat a diet meal rather than bacon eggs, you know, Uh, biscuits and gravy and all the stuff that we love. (laughs) I leave for work at 7.35 after getting up at about 6 o'clock. And I get my morning huddle started at 7.50. I live three miles from my office. Okay. So so a lot of people should be envious. Sure. The people that make that long commute, I feel so sorry for you. You just don't know what you're missing. If you can just (laughs) sleep late. (laughs) So... I I have a morning huddle for 10 minutes, three patients at 8 o'clock. We call it three and three, as we already described. Yeah. To start every day just right, and that's to have a 10K day. So that's my morning ritual. On the days off, if I'm going to be not having to go to practice, I I tend to wake up earlier, actually. Uh, I got so much more to look forward to, I feel like, when I'm having a day off. So I'll get up when – Mood shoots you know wakes me up, but it's usually five o'clock sometimes four thirty huh. uh, this morning it was three o'clock <laughs> Wow, i don't know why I uh, went to Uh-oh. bed at eleven so I, got, I usually sleep five hours a night, but this time I only slept for four hours. so I like to get up before the sun rises. i'll still brush my teeth and put on the Renew twenty eight drink my redox, have my coffee, but um, I might not take a shower yet because I'm not going to be around anybody that cares how I smell. (laughs) Great. I don't don't What about about Sheila? But I'll go through and sit in my favorite chair, and it's in the sunroom, and it's dark outside. And I I really like to sit there alone. Nobody else is up in the house. And I'll browse through the social media, look at the emails, write, read, and create a to-do list for the day. And so – I basically love that morning time where I could really think, and I do my best thinking in the morning. Okay. I'm very very creative in the morning, and I find that I'm not in the evening anymore. I want to just kind of slowly crash at about midnight. Got it. Sometimes I'll uh, re- read myself into the last hours, uh-huh. but I enjoy reading fiction. You know, I'm not as near interested in and, and improving my mind as I used to be. Okay. I like to just, uh, my retirement, my rewirement is to take a trip of the mind into fiction. Huh. And and I'll read things that interest me. Uh, I'll take an author and I'll buy every book he's written, and I'll go through his whole series. Wow. That's That's been an interesting thing, you know. I went through and and got all of Isaac Isimov's Foundation and Earth series, long yeah. ago uh, went through of course uh, james bond books when i was a kid yeah i went through uh tom clancy's books hunt for red october uh yeah you name it you know any of the thrillers i've, I've gone through hmm. so i enjoy that genre i like the legal things that are uh, i forget his name right now but the uh the legal guy that did uh The one Julia Roberts and Tom Cruise have been in their movies. So every time I get an author, I just go through and read them all. So I have fun with that. Mm. And I still read books on management and marketing and personal development too, of course. So, so
0: while you're talking about the books, why don't we tell the most gifted books you have given, if any?
1: I gave a lot of books in the, 19, uh, I mean the uh, early 2000s to friends of mine, the prayer of Jabez, which was by Bruce Wilkinson. And that was a book that was written about an old Testament passage that talks about, um, a little family in the Bible that had about six lines dedicated to their struggle through life and success. And and it talks about why Jabez was successful. Okay. And And he was successful because he prayed, he had a prayer and, um, Bruce wrote a whole book on that one, six lines, and talked about, you know, oh, God, give me uh, this position in life to p- protect me and provide for my family. It was a very small prayer. And so Bruce taught us to pray that prayer. And when I developed my practice in Stone Mountain, I was really doing it for myself. Right. And when I moved I moved to Swanee. I started doing it for the Lord. I started thinking about, you know, how would— that be spiritually, to do things for him. And so the prayer of Jabez was an outshoot of that. And I used to give that book away because I used to pray that prayer every day, and our practice grew a half a million a year every year for 10 straight years. And it was like the prayer came to life as we were growing. And uh, the main tenet of the uh, prayer was expand my territory. Okay. You know, and I just expanded, 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 and nobody thought anybody could grow half a million a year. Sure. Infinitely. Mm Mm-hmm. And the only reason I stopped growing was because I decided I didn't want to grow any bigger. I believe you could be twice that big if you kept wanting to be that big if you apply the principles. So I gave that book away based on that inspiration. Okay. The next book I gave away was uh, It's My Ship. And It's My Ship was a book that was written by a captain of a Navy ship that was rated the worst in the Navy when okay. he took on the the, the ship as the captain and became the best in the Navy by his actions. And so he wrote a book on how it became the best in the – it was all about expectations. You expect it, it will happen, and he talked about how to do that. And that has a great analogy to dentistry and how your team – can become a, a team of tens as long as you have an expectation as a captain. Huh. So that was a good book. And I gave that to a lot of my mastermind guys. And they said that was the most important book. And I, I give a bunch of books away every year. My wife has been a book giver for 30 years and, and I got into the habit. And I, and people really do appreciate a book picked out by their mentor. Sure. It fits, fits them. Now, I guess the book I've given away the most recently is the ones I've written, and I'll use those to give away um, hard copies to certain people, uh, PDFs to everybody that wants one. Yeah. So so I've given thousands of books away from that standpoint. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Um, So uh, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? I think I talked about a little bit earlier, sort Mm -hmm. of about the clone question is what separates you from other dentists? You know, they always want to know why I can do more than they can or why I do twice as much as most dentists do. And um, they always want to know how they can replicate that, how they can do that. And I just pull them back to my books and I go up. I think if you look at the books and see what I've written, you could probably do it if you go through the coursework and listen to what we say, you could probably do it. So what separates me from others is that I'm an implementer. Okay. Most -hmm. people listen and forget. They don't listen and implement. They, They think it's too hard. They think it's too expensive. They think it's too weird. They think it's too hard, too scary. I mean, there's a lot of adjectives that they have for it, but if they put reasons why they can't do something down on paper or hold it in their mind, that that mindset prevents them from being like me. Huh. And so I basically break the mindset and create new mindsets when people come into our practice for patients or when they come into my mastermind for dentists. I, I just create a new mindset of what's possible. Right. You know? If it's been done, it's probably possible. Resonates with every single patient and every single uh, practitioner that comes into our sphere of influence. Got it. Thank you. Um, when you think
0: of a person being successful, who are the two people that comes to your
1: mind? Oh, why don't we talk about Gary Takas? Okay. Gary's sure. a buddy from 35 years ago. Okay. We, we met at Kendrick Mercer's when he was a office Manager. worker. Yeah. He was beginning. He didn't know a thing about dentistry. He came in as an office person to learn and study under somebody who was known to be uh, in that sphere. Okay. Oh. So I, I was picked up at the airport in a mercedes By Gary Takas, He drove us from the airport to the meeting place. And along the way, he talked to us. And he was learning how to be a dental communicator. And he tells a great story in our podcast that we did together about that, how he grew from being uh, uh, basically an office flunky to the main consultant over a period of years Mm -hmm. with Kendrick Mercer. And then he went out on his own. But along the way, he joined with Omer Reed, and I met up again with Gary at Omer's Pentegra. And that was a uh, high-end mastermind where where we would go and study again at Omer's feet. And he was the main guru, guide, mentor for a group of dentists. And Gary was on the staff as one of the facilitators. And then a little later on, Gary started his own consultancy, started his own podcast, and became the podfather of dentistry. Yeah. Yeah. And we always recognize him as such. And one of the highlights of my career, actually, was when I was introduced on stage in Hawaii in Honolulu at the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry as a winner of the um, Give Back a Smile uh, Award, where... I think they picked the people who did the biggest cases for that year and put them on stage and introduced them to give back a smile to abused women. And uh, Gary was the uh, introducer of the winners of the award. So, you know, because we went back so far and we had family connections where he'd come to my kids' baseball games as as they were growing up, it was a special moment to be on stage with him at that time in Hawaii. So – And then, uh, yeah, and then to finish Gary's story, he um, has grown as a consultant and became a practice owner and works in a state where a non dentist can own a practice with a dentist. So he's actually had a learning lab to experiment with in his own right as an owner. And so he speaks with a lot of knowledge and a lot of background when he talks. And so I just look up to Gary in a lot of ways as somebody who's uh, been successful he started off with a goal and never uh, wavered from that goal and focused hard and got the result interesting who who else would be a success let's let's talk about my wife Sheila okay uh, she came from nowhere she was a uh, daughter of sharecroppers and i married her a blue collar family that didn't really have anything in the history that made them appear to be a success. She, she had five siblings Uh and uh, she was the one who aspired to be more and do different. And so she always believed herself better that she would succeed and, When she hung around people in high school, she hung around people on the right side of the tracks and didn't, you know, succumb to the mentality that she'd always be poor. And so uh, when she graduated high school at 16 and she went to work and went to business college and, you know, she was my wife. By the time she was 19, we were married. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was an interesting beginning. Uh, We I met her as a patient and I got to know her and I said, this is a special girl. Huh. And so we started dating and eventually we got married. And uh, she has been in my practice working with me for 40 years. And only after I sold the practice did she get to retire. But she's not really retired. She she still runs the uh, the businesses that we run she's the main consultant for our consultancy she's an author she's um, a prayer minister for 15 years she's uh, director of the healing rooms uh, travels the world with uh, s- some spiritual partners that they teach classes and courses in um, inner healing so she's a success to me she's she's had a great uh, impact on our family sure she's always been uh, hard worker, honest, kept a great house, all the while working. You know, she's not a uh, stay-at-home mom at all. Got it. Thank you. So Gary Tekis and certainly
0: Sheila. Thank you. So um, now we, we've been talking for such a long time right now. Um, I want to humanize everything right now. Now, humanize means the way Tim Ferriss actually says, uh, we've been talking all about your success, you know, doing from, you know, zero office to making 15000 on average uh, a day, uh, working only two days and doing more than what other, and so on. You know, you've got a successful mastermind
1: group. That's um, like being a robot. yeah i've been accused i've been accused of being a robot (laughs) (laughs) well so so automatic so successful
0: yeah so let's let's humanize that robot thing right uh talk about one of your failures which you obviously can publicly share uh just to
1: so that people can relate to you a little more yeah, you know, there's a lot of failure that happens. I just tend to pass through it. Okay. Um, and I've had teaching groups that we worked with that started out with f- four doctors band together to teach a class. And it was a course that was four doctors four days a weekend for four weekends, 16 days total. And so we'd bring people in and teach them and TMJ and orthodontics and reconstruction. And so we had that going on. And we had to fire one of the guys one night because it got to be the point where it was just a negative influence on the group. And so I was the one elected to fire him. Hmm. I started the thing. I started the thing. I was the main one behind the company. So it was like my company, but we all shared in the company. But we decided as a group, the three of us, that one of them had to go and I had to fire him. And it was at a special meeting that we were at the AID maxi course in Augusta learning implants. And uh, he flies a Cessna. Yeah, yeah. And so we're up at the airport and uh, I say, i got to talk to you before you fly home. And he says, okay. And I said, we need to do it in a private place. So said, the only private place there was, was upstairs at the hangar. And it was 100 degrees in that room. Okay. So I, d- I delivered this message to him that, yeah, the other guys decided that we don't want you in our group anymore. It's like, you know, we have to basically change our plan and you're not in it. And it hit him like a ton of bricks, and he was really hit. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have he hadn't had any clue it was coming and I worried about him taking that airplane up in the air, and I wondered how he would actually come down and I thought this might be something that would send him into a, a nosedive, dive, yeah, and so you know it's tough that was a a situation you know teaching with a dentist you 've got egos and you got certain things that will backfire not life is not always smooth. another situation uh, was i've had eighteen associates, some of them stayed eight years, some of them stayed you know a month yeah uh, i've had to get rid of some because they were terrible i've had um, one guy walked out on me over Christmas when I was on vacation. He was supposed to be taking care of the office. He walked out on me. Wow. And um, mm-hmm. I had just taken him to Utah to a Napili 2 with a oh. whole team. And he was like going to become my partner. He was not just going to be an associate, but he was going to buy in after a year. And so he walks out about nine months into our contract. No advance notice, nothing. So I get back, you know, to the practice, and there he's gone. Yeah. And I, you know, came to find out later he never intended to stay. He was just working until he got his boards in Florida. Oh, okay. So I was pretty floored over that. If I'd known he was part-time, I wouldn't have invested, you know, tens of thousands into his education over nine months. Right, right, right. That's part of the deal, you know. I think the lesson for owners is – if you're going to spend money on people's education, you probably need a prenup if they leave before a certain time and they owe it back to you. Sure. Thank you. And um, those are some of the, those are, I mean, I got a story a week. that could be called how to overcome tough things. <laughs> my, my practice had two associates in Swanee. Yeah. And, uh, One was supposed to come back from maternity leave, got about a week before she was coming back, and she decided she wasn't. Okay. And then a month later, the other partner's wife got uh, pregnant. He was the dentist, but she was pregnant, and she wanted to move back home to mama, and they lived in a different state. Right. And so I lost two dentists in one month. Wow. And it was like from three dentists to just me. Yep, and so I had about six weeks of uh, time before I could find a, an associate to come in, and unfortunately, I found a very good one, and he was experienced, and we actually produced as much the two of us as the three of us had been doing. Nice, very so there nice. was a, a a really nice end result. But that's a scary time, it's when you you have a practice that big, and fall that fast. Yeah, I think that's what. Um
0: I think the limiting reaction in this whole practice situation is the dentist. You know, the day, uh, the day uh, Dr. Bill's gone, the patient's gone. Today, you know, because they like Dr. Bill for whatever reasons, you know, they'll just love his personality or whatever. Uh, he's the one who does, sure. Um, if you could go back in your career or life, it could be life too, by the way, and change one decision, what would that be?
1: Uh, easy thing to say is location. I I moved to the place, um, that my developer cousin said not to go to when I started practice. It was kind of a a up and coming place. It looked really cool, but they knew what was coming. And so I I stayed there 23 years, but eventually it changed the nature of the character of the practice changed, crime increased, and I moved because of that. And I moved up here to Suwannee, which is exactly where they told me to move in nineteen seventy-five. Wow. It wow. was like amazing that I chose Suwannee twenty-three years later because it was the place to go. And I hit it exactly right. But if I moved in seventy five instead of two, in ninety seven, it would have been better for me. But I always say, you know, there's a there's a reason things happen. And if I hadn't moved just that area First, in 75, I wouldn't have met my wife. She wouldn't, wouldn't have been my patient. <laughs> so it, it all worked out for the best that I go through 23 years of growth and change before I came here to my final practice. And uh, this, is, this has been a wonderful place to practice. So location is the big deal. Don't choose a place that is not going to be strong. You know, the one thing a dentist d- can do to avoid – a lot of problems is starting over. If you could build a practice that's the perfect practice in one location, you're saving yourself hundreds and even a million dollars of of, uh, practice building time and and energy. If I could show a dentist how to build a practice that's expandable like an accordion in one place and live in that area a whole career, they'd end up with twice as much in their bank account because of you don't you don't start over you don't build a new facility you don't have to get all this equipment three and four times when you go from facility to facility to facility i've had four facilities yeah and if i could show somebody how to do it once right that would be a smart move got it got it so uh, what do you think you like about Suwannee? this has got a good demographic we've got what is good demographic in your definition uh, average household income is very high. Okay. Uh, lots of uh, award-winning things in national magazines for Swanee, if you look at uh, okay. many magazines over the last decade have given Swanee the best place to live in America. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. In okay. In Georgia, especially. Sure. And so it's good schools, low crime, lots of nice parks, good education facilities. Some of the best high schools in the state are right here. So it's got well-rounded community. You, you know, every magazine loves to have an article on that once a year. Yeah. So Swanee comes up often.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: Good. Uh, now,
0: carrying on, uh, what advice you might give to younger self? When you were, I don't know, twenty years old, thirty years old, forty years old, maybe based on each decade, if you if you can think about.
1: What advice? So <laughs> imagine. I think I would say find a mentor and follow them for a year, two or three. A lot of times, it's not enough to do a year with a mentor. You know, I, I stayed around Quest for three years, straight around Omer for four or five years, stayed around Kendrick Mercer for four years, um, hung around Armin Moran for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking multiple years is a better thing than one year. You don't learn enough from a mentor in a year that they can give you.
2: Got so
1: that, that's a, a given set up your own goal key list. I, I talk about the goal key list in my book. Uh, because I learned that from Armin Morin, is if you can put down a series of events that need to happen to be successful, sequential events that you accomplish, that's called a goal key list. And if, and if if at the end of the list you reach that goal, then that's a positive thing. So I did the goal key list for the $5 million practice. And so if anybody wants a copy of that, it's in the book. Okay. I, I like to... Set list and checklist are very important. We mm-hmm. teach on that. Take time to become a master of your craft. You know I talk about the Decathlon dentist, and it takes about ten to twenty years to become the real true decathlon dentist. So you start early and keep at it. Nobody in their first five years is going to be one. but that's okay. You, you You add a discipline once every year or two. You know you become expert. I didn't even start crowning bridge. Training for four or five years out of school beyond what I already knew. And TMJ, I didn't start it until four or five years out of school. And I didn't start implant training until I was 12 years out of school. I didn't even start high end cosmetics until I was 20 years out of school. Hmm. And so it takes time to develop. And I I didn't even start sleep dentistry until, you know, 30 years after I was out of school. Sure, sure. Got it. Hmm.
2: So. uh Finally,
1: be involved in your community. Okay. Be a leader. Uh, remember the seven circles of influence yeah. and mm-hmm. what that does for your practice. Learn to be effective and efficient uh, so you can leave that balanced life, so you can have plenty of time off, plenty of money to travel, to tithe, to invest in your retirement. You know, To me, dentists want to be two things. They want to work less and earn more. Right. And that's – the only way you can do that is to be more efficient and more effective. Right.
0: Got it. Got it. Now, uh, if you have a giant billboard such that you could display a great message or a quote for everyone to follow, you know, of course, we're not talking about your company or a podcast. Uh, what would you like to tell your people uh, or the dental world in general?
1: Well, if it's a billboard, it's got to be short and sweet so they can read it when they pass by quickly on the interstate, right? Yep, yep. So it's four words, never settle for average.
0: Never settle for average.
1: Got it. The title of our podcast, the $10,000 a day dental podcast, uh, starts out with uh, something about that same message, never settling for average. And that's kind of what it's all about is what's outside the box thinking going to give you? you know if you want to be average, skip my podcast.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Okay, so the best purchase that you made between hundred to three hundred dollars that impacted your life in a positive way. I'm looking for a small
1: If you're good, uh, you know. I think a, a a good massage at the end of a day, when you've been beat up by dentistry, okay, you go and lay on a table and let somebody else rub the knots out instead of you having to do it yourself. That's a good. That's a good hundred dollar day <laughs> <of> expense. <laughs> having having somebody just minister to you. Because you've been ministering to people all day, and sometimes you just feel beat up. Yeah. And I think that's a good $100 to spend is a a deep muscle massage. Okay. (laughs) That's a good one.
0: Uh, (laughs) You want to say something to uh,
1: the dental ward or people in general? Sure. Uh, I want to say that being on a long-term Tim Ferriss-type podcast is uh, exhilarating, eye-opening, uh, a different beast. I've done 24 or 5 podcasts with other interviewers, and this is definitely the longest. <laughs> and it's enjoyable. I get to be myself better. And so that's fun, Pranks. Thank you for doing that. Um you can reach me and get some fun stuff from me if you want by going to 10kway.com. Mm-hmm. I've got free gifts that i like to give out. You know, some of my books are on PDF for free. Download them, and 10kway.com's got one. And then um, my Solstice Dot Academy has all kind of fun stuff that we have available. Yeah, and uh, I'm always willing to share with people what I know, what works. The 5M coming up in January is 24th and 25th, and we've got eight places. Some of them are already filled, but would be glad to talk to anybody who wants to. I call it um, apply because I don't take everybody into the group. Okay. So apply. and uh, I think this is a good time that we wrap
0: up with this amazing interview with Dr. Bill Williams. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Will, for your time and your patience to answer all the questions. I hope to see you soon. If you want to see who I have for the next episode, please hit subscribe to hashtag PODOfDentistry on iPhone, Android, and all the other common platforms. The website where everything lives is rightly called as Podcasts of Dentistry. If you are interested in being a part of our amazing group, please join us on Facebook at slash Facebook. I'll see you there. Best from Panks Dingro.